And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is episode number 147, recorded on December 13th, 2019. Here are some of our topics for today. 3.2 billion euros for battery tech, the future foods, Amazon and Deliveroo update, the new VC kids on the block, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Sonia Iovieno, the head of venture and growth banking at Silicon Valley Bank. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how are you doing? Hi, Andre, doing well. Hope you're doing well too. Yeah, very much. Thanks a lot. And I guess we can just uh, move on to the stories right away because we have a lot of stuff to talk about. I will start. Let's talk big money. Uh, the European Commission has approved uh, 3.2 billion euros of public funding to go to a large battery innovation project. And this doesn't mean uh, that the Commission itself is going to give the money, but it rather means that it has agreed that seven EU countries will inject this money as subsidies into the project. The Commission also expects that this investment will bring another 5 billion euros in private funding. So normally, uh, this kind of state subsidizing would not be accepted uh, due to competition concerns, but this case uh, is uh, sort of an exception because it falls under the framework of so-called important projects of common European interest, and uh, it allows uh, European states to support these kind of ventures if, I quote, private initiatives supporting innovation fail to materialize because of the significant risks such projects entail, the quote ends. So long story short, the seven countries that participate in this project are Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Poland, and Sweden. The project should be completed by 2031. And uh, speaking of funding, about two-thirds of all the money will uh, come from Germany and France. The goal of this project is to build up Europe's capacity to produce its own batteries, as well as to perform R&D activities to make them more efficient. And there are 17 companies involved in this project, and they will focus on four main aspects. These are raw and advanced materials, cells and modules, battery systems and repurposing, and recycling and refining. Here is also a quote from Deutsche Welle for some context as to why this project has been started at all. The quote begins, electric battery production is an important industry sector for Europe, and the push for subsidies is part of a broader push led by France and Germany to make sure Europe doesn't fall behind in the transition from gas combustible to electric engines. In particular, uh, Europe is uh, concerned about becoming dependent on electric car battery production in Asia, which currently produces around 80% of the worldwide total. Europe produces only 3%. The quote ends. Uh, German economy minister Peter Altmaier also said uh, that the country should be able to start producing batteries on an industrial scale by the middle of the next decade. So I hope it's not too late for Europe to jump into this uh, bandwagon. And I guess we're going to uh, find out uh, within the next uh, four or five years. But uh, what's, what's your take on this, Natalie? Do you think uh, something is going to materialize as a result of uh, this uh, project? Well, it is a lot of funding. And when I saw this story, that that big number caught my eye. And I'm really glad you took it up for the podcast. 
Because when it comes to batteries in the EU, I just want to kind of throw some numbers out there. Every year, approximately 800,000 tons of automotive batteries, 190,000 tons of industrial batteries, and 160,000 tons of consumer batteries enter the European Union. This is a really big number. This is a lot of batteries. It is a lot of capacity. So it's a huge challenge that the EU is taking on. And so the success of a program like this really kind of depends on the scale and kind of what your success parameters are. And despite this move, there isn't really enough adequate infrastructure to manufacture this demand at the moment. So we'll see how it goes. But there's also this question of efficacy and kind of if you can really enforce and ensure that these things are happening. Because if we're just looking at this one issue area with batteries and this massive number of them, um, hundreds of thousands of tons of batteries, less than 50% of these are recycled. And there have been a number of EU directives that are have specifically been designed to address this really vital issue. So from 1991 to 2006, these things need to be properly disposed of. And it is on the onus of the consumer, the manufacturer, and the state to make sure that these programs are put in place. And as we've seen so far, these haven't happened. So I'm going to remain skeptical. Um, I hope it's going to work, but I'm not going to be um, holding my breath on if it's actually going to pan out or not. So it's one of the rare cases when you are more skeptical than I am. I mean, at, at the very least, this is a step in the right direction because something does have to be done uh, uh, with this, right? So it's uh, it's better than nothing, I suppose. Although 3.2 billion euros is a lot of money. And it's just, if it's just wasted, then of course, it's not a great idea. I mean, and I, I'm not really in a position to kind of comprehend if 3.2 billion is enough. Maybe it needs to be more. The scale of the problem is really considerable. So if it's, it, it's really hard to tell. Yeah, I also, I also have very little understanding of the industry. But uh, since uh, there are these 17 uh, different companies that uh, take part in the project, and some of them are, for example, BMW and uh, Varta, uh, the German battery producer. So I suppose they at least know what they are doing. So hopefully we will see something soon. Now, Natalie, you wanted to talk about the no, non-meat meat again, right? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I was just, because we're getting close to the end of the year, and I wanted to go back to some of the biggest stories that we've been seeing come up over the course of the year in, in the podcast. And one of the most significant trends that we've been talking about over the course of this year has been the rise of lab-grown meats and plant-based alternative foods. Um, we talked about insect foods on the podcast before. And what I think has been really interesting about this year is this growing resonance of these different alternatives amongst consumers. Um, and you see this all across Europe, but also it's really taking the world by storm. Um, and there was a few news items in the last week that really um, kind of brought this to the forefront. And first was on the topic of lab-grown proteins. And in the last week, we've learned that the Dutch startup Meetable has raised a new $10 million funding round from a wide variety of investors. But $3 million of this was provided by a grant from the European Commission. Meetable is developing a process that begins with a tissue sample from an animal and ends with a cultured pork product. 
There are a number of producers currently working on cultured beef and fish, but Meatable is one of the highest profile to work specifically on pork production. And this funding injection will be used to accelerate their production process, which they hope to be manufacturing what they quote, thousands of kilograms of meat by 2025. And this investment from the European Commission kind of underlines their interest in this research area. Last week, the European Vegetarian Union released an excerpt of a letter that they received from Carlos Moedas, the former European Commissioner for Research and Innovation, on the topic of plant-based and cultured meats, which said the European Commission is, quote, fully aware of the growing pressure of the global environment and health caused by our overconsumption of animal protein, end quote. The commission has published a number of briefing documents and research reports on lab-grown meat for nearly a decade, which all make really strong conclusions about the lessened environmental impact of meat grown in labs as compared to the more conventional methods. So I think we might be seeing more investments like this in the years to come, especially considering the very big research dollars and euros that the commission has to deploy to these kind of groundbreaking innovations. And there's plenty of other European startups that could benefit from some of these funding injections from Barcelona's Nova Meat, which uses a 3D printing technology to create new beef, to London's Higher Steaks, which is another producer of lab-grown pork. And while wide adoption of lab-grown proteins might be a number of years away for ordinary consumers, it was also plant-based proteins, both meat and dairy alternatives, that really took consumers and investors' attention this year. And this is something we've been continually noticing, um, scanning the news um, for the podcast. Um, and it's been impossible to miss the Silicon Valley startup Impossible Foods. And they have the plant-based burgers that are available all across Europe and and they were announced as the winners of the 2019 United Nations Global Climate Action Award. And European startups in this space have also made a massive splash this year. We've discussed this on the podcast before, but and we both have tasted some of these alternatives. And essentially everywhere you look in Europe, there's an exciting new plant-based uh, option to try. But something really interesting is happening because of the European appetite for plant-based proteins. You have corporates and huge transnationals looking to Europe as a test market for these types of food, and they're investing heavily in it. You're seeing things like the UK, you have KFCs that are launching vegan pilots. You also have vegan offerings now in McDonald's and Taco Bell chains in Spain have launched an alternative beef taco that is made out of oats. But they're also some more substantial things that are happening that really have the opportunity to impact on the ecosystem. So it was announced just last week that Unilever has launched a $94 million innovation center, which is based in the Netherlands in Eindhoven, to develop plant-based foods and sustainable food packaging. This new facility, which they'll call the Hive, aims to turn Europe into a world-leading R&D center for plant-based foods and is likely to lead to some incredible spillover effects for European startups working on these types of products. We've already seen some good examples so far 
are of European startups competing internationally with their products. Uh, one example that we've mentioned previously is the UK-based Meatless Farm, which launched in the U.S. this summer, but also Sweden's Oomph, they hit retailers here in the U.K., and Oatly, um, the oat-based milk solution, has started to take on China, which is a, a really ambitious market for them. But I think in 2020, if we are going to continue to see further momentum in this space, but if European alternatives are going to keep up with their North American counterparts, I hope we see investment in this space growing as well. We see lots of rounds, but maybe not as much as we might need to see um, for it, for them to compete. In May, Silicon Valley's Impossible Foods raised another $300 million Series E round, and Beyond Meat's IPO was one of the biggest success stories of the year. And everywhere I go, I'm meeting so many great founders and trying out lots of exciting plant-based foods all across Europe. And there are some really incredible producers here, but for the most part, they're largely getting by with small grants, crowdfunding, and bootstrapping. And if you're interested in this space, there's so many exciting things to try and really so much opportunity to be, to be gained for some of these startups to really reach a higher scale and a higher visibility. In 2020, I'd really like to see one of these European food tech brands become a huge global name like Beyond or Impossible has because the demand for these things is here and it's really massive. And I just hope that European startups and producers can capitalize on that. Yeah, that would surely be, that would surely be great. Uh, but uh, I was actually... Surprised to hear that uh, uh, the lab uh, uh, the lab meat will only be produced in thousands of kilograms by 2025. That's not a lot. That's not a lot at all. So basically, it means that to actually have anything on an industrial scale uh, from that source would take another 10 years or something, right? You know, I hadn't really thought about that, um, but I do know some some of these lab grown products are available in very small portions right now. And I've been following it in a number of things. And there is one, they they did one journalist dinner that is something like $25,000 burger because it's just, it's, it's just really, they haven't been able to scale these up for it's. So I'm really excited that Meetables received this $10, 10 million investment, but is that going to be enough to take them to the next level? It, it is. It is some something to think about because it is such a technical product. Yeah, it doesn't quite uh, quite seems uh, so. Most probably, it will have to look for more money. And I mean, I was I was just so hopeful. I'm, I'm I am so hopeful that uh, we will be able to get those lab grow meats. I think I actually like that. Uh, prospect much better uh, than the idea of uh, plant uh, based uh, things but i guess for now we will have to we'll have to stick for that and uh, to insects but actually i don't uh, i don't see any insect based uh, stuff in the in the stores yet it's coming it's coming especially in the netherlands because there are a number of really notable producers there so i think it will only be a matter of time yeah for sure yeah. Okay. Maybe if I have if I have some time uh, next week or during the holidays, I should probably just Google those producers and uh, uh, find and uh, order something from their websites just to just to try and encourage the providers. Maybe lab grown and insect based Christmas meal would be a really nice thing to serve up 
to your friends and family. That sounds about right, but I, I'm afraid I can't really afford the $25,000 <laughs> burger. But maybe there, if there is something more affordable, I will uh, certainly uh, take a look. <laughs> Okay, uh, before we move on to the interviews and everything else, I wanted to do another quick update, same in the same vein that I did last uh, uh, week, uh, just another kind of follow-up on a story that we discussed back in May, and that story just received an update a few days ago. So if you remember uh, the funding round of uh, 575 million US dollars for Deliveroo, uh, that round was led by Amazon, and uh, that fact triggered a reaction from the Competition and Markets Authority Uh, aka the CMA in the UK. And six months have passed now, and uh, just a couple of days ago, the CMA finally has announced that the deal in question may require an in-depth investigation as it, quote-unquote, raises serious competition concerns. As uh, Yahoo Finance reports, the CMA has uh, given two reasons why the deal may harm competition in the UK. First, uh, it thinks that if Amazon takes a stake in Deliveroo, it won't actually be motivated to re-enter the UK market with its own Amazon restaurants service. That service pulled out of the UK last year, and according to Yahoo Finance, that happened after it had failed to make headway in a market that is dominated by Deliveroo, Uber Eats, and Just Eat. The second part of the CMA's concerns is about the grocery delivery market, where Amazon Fresh competes directly with Deliveroo again. And this deal, uh, and the deal in question could uh, supposedly disincentivize Amazon from advancing further. So in summary, the CMA is worried that Amazon will not compete with Deliveroo if it invests in it, which I suppose is a fair point. And now the two companies have five working days to send the CMA proposals that would address these issues. And after that, the CMA will have another five working days to assess these proposals. And then it will have to make a decision of whether to accept these proposals and greenlight the deal or to refer the deal for an in-depth investigation, which, uh, judging by the speed of the movement of the CMA, may take another half a year or even longer. So either way, We're going to have more information uh, before Christmas, and probably Amazon and Deliveroo are seriously looking forward uh, to hear something from the CMA now. Natalie, uh, you, you, you live in the UK. What do you think of the competition on the uh, food delivery and the grocery delivery market? So I, as I've said previously, I don't use any of these services, and I had no yeah, idea. But do you see it around? I don't actually see it around where I live, um, and I wasn't aware that Deliveroo was actually in the grocery delivery business. Um, but I know it does. Deliveroo has a very large and growing engineering center in Edinburgh and that they're very invested in building further. So um, it does complicate what um, their plans are there, um, I imagine, especially because they are very invested in making um, this part of Scotland a, a real center of um, engineering and um, development. So I wonder if that might complicate things for them. And I really hope it doesn't because uh, it is bringing in a lot of fresh talent and new ideas, which I think is really valuable for, for this ecosystem, at least. 
Right. So, 10 working days and we will have more news. In the meantime, it is time for an interview. And this week I wanted to uh, feature a conversation with Sonia Jovieno, the head of venture and growth banking at Silicon Valley Bank. We had this conversation uh, back at Slush uh, in Helsinki. And I think it's, uh, it's a really great one to listen to. So let's do it together. And we will be back in a few minutes with recommendations. Hi, yeah, so I'm Sonia Joviano uh, and I'm with Silicon Valley Bank. I run the venture and growth banking team within the bank. Right. So what is the Silicon Valley Bank and how are you different from any other bank? Right. Yeah. So we are um, a commercial bank based out of California, working with companies and investors, but exclusively focused on companies in the technology, innovation and life sciences area and the private equity and venture capital funds who back them. And how long have you been with the bank? Uh, just over three years now. So how active is the Silicon Valley Bank in Europe in general? Oh, increasingly active. So we've actually been here for about 14 years now, based out of London. But there's a huge growth in the ecosystem over the last few years in particular. So last year, we opened a new branch in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we've put some boots on the ground in Copenhagen to really cover the Nordics. And we're spending a lot more time around Nordics, Benelux, a little bit in Spain. Uh, so increasingly active over here. So why this choice of countries, the UK, then Germany, then Denmark? Yeah, that's a great question. I suppose our business model is about helping fast growth, scale up companies be really successful. And in order to do that, we really need a few components to the ecosystem to to make it, um, I suppose, viable for us. First is a concentration of talent of these startup companies, which are being encouraged locally to produce entrepreneurs and and. Um, successful companies. And secondly, we need to see uh, capital coming into those companies, uh-huh. private capital, usually led by large venture capital um, funds and private equity funds, either in the local environment, but also coming in internationally from the US around Europe and Asia. And these are markets where we're starting to see a real preponderance of those components coming together. Right. So what is the deal? What sort of deal are you offering for the startups? How is it different from any other bank can offer? Yeah, I think the startup journey is is quite different to if you're dealing with a well-established company. Um, and, and by startups, we're, as I said, really focused on high growth startups. Mm-hmm. So these are companies that are typically raising multiple rounds of equity. They are very quickly evolving their business plans. They're probably born, particularly in Europe, with an international bent to their companies. And it's very difficult for existing banks with their existing structures to lean in and work on a one-to-one basis with the founders of these companies when they're very small at Silicon Valley Bank, we really understand the entrepreneur journey. So we have individual relationship managers working with companies from a seed stage onwards. And then as they start to scale, even when they're loss making, we can bring lending structures to bear that adds to the capital that companies can use in order to grow the value of their business. Most banks don't really lend to loss making companies. And that's something that we've been doing for almost 40 years now. now how does it work for you? And do you actually get money as in cash back uh, at the end of the day, or do you also take a stake in the companies that you lend to? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what we're doing with them. So if we're lending with them, um, we're absolutely, it's it's like any loan to a company mm-hmm. that there's a an interest rate charge, there's a rate of return. Um, there's also usually on venture debt uh, structures, a warrant component. So mm-hmm. there is um, certainly an intention to participate in the upside and be aligned with the investors and the board and the, the growth and the success of those companies. But you know, a lot of our customers don't 
borrow as well and they, they're looking for support as they expand. So we're providing day-to-day banking to them. We're helping them go into the US to sort of have a soft landing there. And we're using, you know, the full platform of the bank um, in order to sort of grow those relationships from helping them with foreign currency management, with how they handle their deposits, particularly if they're raising large equity rounds. You know, preservation of capital is absolutely key. So all the different banking solutions that we can bring to bear to sort of help grow and and companies in a very stable way. Sounds interesting. So who are your competitors on this market then? It's a variety. There's In Europe, there's really sort of no one who does exactly what Silicon Valley Bank mm-hmm. does at all life stages. So, you know, at the very early stage, I suppose it's local banks that are providing day-to-day banking, but they're usually not providing significant lending facilities. When you're looking at venture capital-backed companies who are raising large rounds and putting debt facilities in place, there are specialized debt funds in the market who are funded by LPs, by big investors, and who are looking for a higher rate of return normally than a bank like SVB would look for. And then as companies get much larger, maybe pre-IPO, you start to see investment banks and larger retail and commercial banks start to get interested, although they won't always lend until maybe perhaps they IPO. And of course, we look after a lot of large corporates. And once you're looking after large corporates, then all the commercial banks start to become a little bit more interested, although not all of them will look at technology companies. And where does the funding of uh, the bank itself uh, come from? Who are your LPs, if you can call them that? No, so we're a PLC, actually. We're, we're right. fully quoted in the US. And our, our capital base is really bolstered by deposits. So our business, as I said, is both looking after technology companies and also private equity funds. Mm-hmm. So when the funds raise large new funds, they put that on deposit with us. And when companies are raising equity from those funds, they put that on deposit with us. And then we lend to both the companies and the funds. So it's a very nice sort of virtual circle, if you like, of yeah. uh, of benefit where we sit in the middle of that ecosystem. It sounds really interesting. So it makes me wonder, why is it so that nobody else is doing uh, this model? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we go back a long way, right? I mean, we, we started this almost 40 years ago and... Our founders really came out of high growth tech companies that were super successful in the US and found that other banks didn't understand that journey and didn't have the expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most banks try to service lots of different sectors in lots of ways. They try to bring all things to all people. It's very difficult to, if that's your background, to then suddenly start creating this type of service for high growth technology companies because the know-how and the expertise simply isn't in those banks. That's not how they they're used to behaving and that's not the type of company they're used to looking after so it's quite difficult to replicate so do you have any particular uh, sweet spot in terms of like at which point should startups uh, turn to to you I think the main thing for us and where we're relevant to companies is we're not relevant to all tech companies. We're relevant to high growth companies. Um, and I think uh, really as soon as companies have got their business to the stage that they have a validation point that it's not just a science project, you know, whether it's revenues or whether it's new customer acquisition, that they can show that actually there's a demand for the product, there's a business case, and they're getting funding from a third party like an angel investor um, or a seed finance investor, that's the point at which we can start to really take them on board and work with them. And certainly if they're raising money from venture capital, uh, that's somewhere, something where we can work very closely with them and be supportive. So you provide capital for rapid scaling, we can say. That's right. So how is it different and how is it better than uh, what this imaginary startup uh, can raise from VC? 
So um, I'd say it's 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 different, but not necessarily better. It's complementary. Right. Uh, so quite often when you're raising money from a VC, it takes the form of equity and it probably is going to give somewhere between 18 to 24 months of cash runway for the business before they need to think about either becoming profitable or raising equity again. What we do with Venture Debt is we elongate that period by maybe another 6 to 12 months before they need to go back to market. So that allows them another 6 to 12 months of either scaling the company and building the valuation. Mm-hmm. Or of course, in some cases, companies might have a little delay in hitting the KPIs they need to access the next round. And that venture deck can just give them that breathing room, that insurance policy to give them an extra few months to, to start making sure they're hitting the right metrics. Right, that makes sense. And uh, it means also that you need to have certain expertise Uh, in certain industries, in certain verticals. Do you have any particular focus uh, uh, verticals that you would uh, lend to more likely than uh, to others? We look right across all technology and life sciences companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have big verticals where we see large numbers of companies come through in fintech, enterprise software, consumer internet and frontier tech. But we also look at clean tech, cybersecurity, everything in between. Um, for us, it's really looking at a combination of the company proposition, the IP, the USP, the management team, and then the strength of the investors around them. So the analysis that you do is not that different from uh, uh, something that a VC would uh, perform? It's very close to that, actually. Yes, we're, we're looking at the same sort of DD. Um, and within the bank, you know, we have a deep pool of knowledge that has been working with entrepreneurs and lending to these companies for many years. It's really interesting. Basically, it is a bit counterintuitive, I think, for a startup now to turn to a bank for uh, funding or for uh, uh, borrowing money. How do you how do you fight that, if you will? How do you raise awareness of that possibility at all? Yeah, you're quite right. It's very, very well known and established in the US because a lot of people have been entrepreneurs a number of times. In Europe, we're still, I think, educating the market. I think it's really a case of looking at, you know, what your equity is is bringing to the table in terms of the longevity it's giving you to to build a company. And then debt isn't isn't right for all companies. I think you have to be comfortable with the level of equity cushion and your ability to execute on your plan in order to then layer in the debt on top because, of course, unlike equity, debt has to be repaid. And so I think it's a question of having that strength of the board and the investor syndicate around you to continue to support you as you scale, which is why we work with VCs, because VCs don't just invest in one round, they put capital aside for further investment as well. And then it's about understanding the function of the debt. So at an early stage, the function of the debt is to boost growth. And so it can complement the equity in that way. At a later stage, maybe when you've got a certain level of revenue or accounts receivable, it could be to provide working capital support. And quite often investors don't want their equity to provide working capital funding. They want their equity to provide growth. So there's a role for a bank to provide short-term working capital funding. Right. So you mentioned that you're working with with the VCs as well. Uh, what exactly do you do with them? So we work with the VCs in a number of ways. Um, we are the house bank for uh, a large number of VCs. So for mm-hmm. instance, in the US, about 60 to 70% of all the VCs bank with Silicon Valley Bank and about 50 to 60% of all of private equity funds bank with us. So we're providing their day-to-day 
banking, we're also lending to them. Um, so quite often there will be a gap between when a VC is calling down on funds from their LPs to fund their investments. And we bridge that gap by providing short-term lending facilities to them. And then we work very closely with the investment partners in the VCs. So we have a huge pool of startups um, and scale-up companies that we look at and VCs at all levels want access to understand who are the best companies that are coming through. And because the entry bar to bank with Silicon Valley Bank is very high, they understand that there's a high quality of companies coming through. So we help them in terms of that overview of the market and which are the best companies coming through. Okay. Do you also form syndicates uh, in a way uh, with the VCs? to lend the money together with the investment? I suppose we do and we don't. I wouldn't call it a syndicate, mm-hmm. but um, we have very long-term relationships with a number of well-established VCs who understand um, how debt can be effective in companies. So quite often we'll find if they're investing in a company, if we're not already talking to that company, a VC will quite often sort of call us and say, hey, we, we have a founder that is potentially um, looking for some debt alongside. Would you guys like to come in and, and talk to them and see if it's suitable? So we certainly have a symbiotic relationship and, and vice versa where if we're talking to companies that um, we think will be of particular interest to partners in certain VCs because it's their area of expertise, we will refer them to the VCs for um, potential investment as well. So we do work very closely together like that. Right. So do you think your model is generally taken off in Europe? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're super excited. You know, I joined the bank uh, in London three years ago and we had, I think, about 120 people at that stage. Uh, we're now just over 300. Um, so we're growing very quickly, much like many of the companies that we're working with. And I think that is really a function of, you know, how the ecosystem is growing here. We're seeing a lot more international VCs spending time in the market. We're certainly seeing more US VCs spend time in the market here. And so it, it's making us more relevant. And I think that uh, we're also seeing, obviously, every year, a larger number of unicorns coming out of the the European ecosystem. And all of that is sort of, you know, when those companies exit, those founders are reinvesting in the ecosystem again. And those boards are working on, on more startups again. And so as we all work together, that all sort of feeds into Silicon Valley Bank's model and how we can continue to grow and support the ecosystem. And what is your uh, biggest geography in Europe at the moment? I'd say it's probably the UK because we've been there longest. Um, right. And it's also the largest market in the UK for attracting VC funding and particularly around the London area. We obviously have quite a significant fintech footprint around the city of London, which is really exciting. Um, but I think in terms of growth prospects, we're very excited about Germany. As I said, we opened an office there two years ago and that was something that was in the planning for four years because we had seen huge waves of companies coming, asking us to bank with us and to support them from the German market. So lots going on in there. And then we're obviously super excited about the Nordics. I think the level of talent and deep tech uh, coming out of uh, sort of Copenhagen, Stockholm, Helsinki um, has been increasing year on year. And we think that there's going to be, you know, a real boost in the growth coming out of uh, out of this region. Right. This is really interesting. So that's it for my questions. Uh, so thanks a lot, uh, Sonia, and uh, good luck with uh, everything in Silicon Valley Bank. Great. Thanks a million. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechEU number 147, and it is time for the recommendations of the episode. So my today's recommendation is a piece by Ian Frisch on 1.0, and it is titled The Influencer and the Hitman. 
And it is a story of how buying a domain name may actually lead to being shot at four years later with all sorts of things happening in the meantime. And I guess this, this short description was quite enough to get you encouraged to, to uh, read this one. So I really won't go any further. I won't give out any spoilers. But the only thing I wanted to say, just a remark really, is that the most unbelievable part for me was that one of the characters in this story was lazy enough not to check the domain transfer procedure with GoDaddy. So I will, again, I will not do any more uh, uh, spoiler giveaways, but uh, you will understand what I mean when you read the, read the news. I mean, but still, it's just totally unbelievable. Anyway, enough for me talking. Uh, check out this story and uh, let us know what you think. Well, that is certainly a surprise. And I know everyone listening to this likely has a couple of domains lying around for those side projects. So hopefully it gives you some hope in, in not getting yourself in, in a bad situation. But my recommendation um, kind of comes from the news. And you might have seen this this week, uh, the launch of a new VC fund titled Eight Adventures by Matt Pennycard and Chuck Warner, uh, the co-founder of Diversity VC. And Chuck is behind a number of different initiatives to help improve inclusion in the tech community. And that's what this new new firm, Eight Adventures, is all about. And they've just raised $34 million to invest in founders from underrepresented backgrounds. And they hope to be a real game changer when it comes to improving the diversity of who gets funded at the early stage. So my recommendation this week, and well, maybe it's not much of a recommendation because it's a piece that thankfully has gotten a lot of attention on the Twitterverse and around the ecosystem. But in case you haven't seen it, it's something written by Czech where she talks about the process of building this fund and what's gone into it and some of the challenges that have come in and kind of the process that you kind of get behind the curtain. So the piece is called On Fundraising and Privilege. And in it, she talks about some of the systemic issues that have contributed to the unequal funding environment when it comes to venture and how it benefits some at the expense of others. Many people talk about changing the ratio of who gets investment in tech, but very few people actually analyze their privilege and kind of understand where they came from and kind of how their outcomes might have been different than others. So what she does here is really break it down and and, and really address it head on. Um, and then she's worked to really address it in a very positive way. And Chaik has looked at this um, really from all angles. And the result of that has been AWC, which really attempts to improve conditions for so many different underrepresented founders. So I wish more people in venture would do this same. Um, and I think it's such a great read. And I want you to have a real hard look at this and kind of understand maybe it, it contributes to your story as well. And I think everyone should have a look and um, I'm happy to, to include that in the show notes. This is a great recommendation. Thanks, Natalie. I have seen the headlines, but I have not read the piece yet either. So I will certainly do that after we finish here. And it's going to be very soon because it is time for us to wrap it up already. That's it for today's podcast. That felt very quick, but I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app.
Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andre at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Enjoy the week. Yep. Thank you, Andre, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.